Well, it's always great for me uh, to be here, and I know my wife Diane shares that sentiment. Ottawa and the Ottawa Valley, Renfrew, uh, and this, actually, this building, this chapel, have been part of my life for many, many years. I, I come from Timmins. I was born in Timmins. I'll probably, no one go with that, maybe die in Timmins. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, I've been here many times, and I've come to know and really appreciate uh, some very, very good friends. Uh, some of them are actually from the north. I see Lola here. And, of course, the Poiriers are here. Uh, the Foremans are not from the north. They just would like to be from the north. Uh, I don't know if Stephen Corte is here this morning. He's my cousin, my cousin's uh, first cousin's son. Is he here? No, I guess not today. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, Carl O'Keefe is here, an old friend of mine from Timmins who now lives here. And Keith Blair is a very close buddy of mine on the Guelph Committee. I really appreciate working with Keith. Uh, have for many years, and so it's good to have that personal connection with many of you, and Goldie's from Cochrane. That's where I first met her, and I've come to know and appreciate her, and her son Steve is with us in the Assembly in Timmins too, so many, many connections uh, with here, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. You may remember uh, three or four years ago when Doug Foster from Renfrew and his wife Joan were killed on that uh, tragic car accident near Carp. They were hit by a young guy filled with fentanyl, uh, he was my first cousin, and uh, I loved him very much. And uh, I used to come to Camp Galilee to be with him and to be with Brian. And uh, uh, of course, it was uh, so the connections are many and they are deep. Uh, and uh, I very much appreciate the connection here. But back in the, in, the, at the, in the first month of this year's baseball season, MLB, there was an item that made the news, the, the, the secular, the non-baseball news. Uh, and it had to do with something that happened in a game. The New York Mets are playing. I can't recall the name of the of the fellow, the pitcher who was involved, but but he was. It was a very. It was a pivotal pivotal time in the in the baseball game, and uh, it was a three two count uh, on a batter, and uh, the umpire made a ter terrible terrible call, and he called a ball what was certainly a strike right down the middle of the of the plate, uh, and uh, it flabbergasted everyone. Uh, the uh, people, the guys who are announcing the game, most importantly, I guess the pitcher. He was really upset by it. Uh, and uh, he stomped off uh, and then had to come back on because he was making a bit of a show to show up the umpire, of course, came back on and, uh, and it was a very, it was a black eye for, for, for that game. Anyway, it didn't make the, that, that's not what made the game. What, what made the game was at the, next, at the next inning, the umpire walked over to the pitcher and said, it's on me, I apologize. He, he said, I apologize. He, 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 he apologized for the error and the pitcher in return said, well, I want to ask you to forgive me for making such an ass of myself when I walked off the, off the field. I mean, a donkey of himself, you understand, that's an Old Testament word, that's, that's okay to say in church. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, what, 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 what made the news there was that apologies are so rare, uh, even in, 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 in areas like, like, like a baseball game and something so small as that, that made big news around the, the world. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is just continue with the narrative that I started last year. I, I spoke uh, on the, the book of, uh, on, on the story of the life of Joseph, and I'm going to go back there and read a few verses in a few minutes from chapter 37 and then a few from, from chapter 45. They're like bookends in the story. So I'm going to read a few uh, from 37, telling you how it started, 45, how it ended with the story of Joseph and his brothers, and then we'll take a flight at about 30,000 feet over the interim chapters and draw out some principles 
of life that speak to the issue of, of forgiveness. I think the, we'll call it the roadmap uh, to forgiveness. Uh, the, the book has been entitled by some, The Pit from the Pit to the Palace. Uh, and I like that. But what I'm going to do this morning is call my little talk, The Road to Forgiveness in a Fractured Family. The Road to Forgiveness in a Fractured uh, Family. Uh, but before I do that, I'm going to, I'm going to quote uh, a verse from Matthew chapter 6. And I, I think those of you who are over 50 can quote it with me if you went to public school in Ontario because it's part of the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you all to, to recite as best you can uh, and, and I think most of us learn the Lord's Prayer to our shame, not at home or in Sunday school, but it's in school, at public school. That's where we learned it, right? Can you help me? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on heaven as it is in heaven. Forgive us our daily bread. Sorry, trespasses. That's the verse. But keep going. Please not attempt to, but deliver us from evil for thine and the glory forever and ever. The, the verse that is going to be a companion verse to my talk this morning is verse 6. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, vertical and horizontal. It's the heart of the Lord's Prayer, of course, asking God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and it's the heart of the Christian gospel. Actually, this morning, I was just sort of trolling through some of the news items and some of the, 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 the lesser items. And one, of course, there's always something in there about Meghan Markle. And this, this headline, I didn't write, I tell you, I didn't read the article. I, I seldom have ever do, but the headline caught my attention. It was her dad saying, why can't Meghan forgive me? Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know why she can't forgive me either. I suppose, but it's easy for me to say that. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, everyone, everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until one has someone to forgive. And that's kind of cute. It's true, isn't it? Everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have someone uh, to forgive. And actually thinking about that myself, that's true, but I find it even harder to ask forgiveness than to forgive someone else. That, For me, that's the hardest thing to do. It has to do with with here, with, with, the, with the pride in my heart. So the talk this morning, the road to forgiveness in a fractured family. Now, before we, before we get to the reading of the text, uh, I, I wanna say this, there, there, are, there are three kind of principles here that I want you to keep in mind that have to do with, with forgiveness. That we'll see, we'll see uh, rooted in the story here, but they're, they're, they're as consistent then, uh, now as they were then. The first, the first story, the first principle is this, is that it's, it has to do with the receptive heart in the, in the, in the offended person. There has to be, for, for reconciliation to take place, there have to be, there, there are three things. There, the first of all is the receptive heart in the heart, in, in, the, in the person of the offended person. The person who's offended, the person who's hurt, has to have a, you'll often hear people say, I forgive that person uh, when they, the person has, the person who has done the offending has not asked for forgiveness. And you wonder, well, how could that be? For forgiveness to be complete, there has to be two sides. And there does. There does. Uh, I mean, the Lord said, forgive them uh, to his father on the cross, for they know not what they do. But for, for forgiveness to be complete, there has to be two sides of it. And the, the first side is a receptive heart in, in, the, in the offended person. 
I, I want to say this. That that is an independent consideration. It is completely. In, we're going to see this here in the story, but I want to suggest to you that's the true. It, it's true when it comes to a, a bit of a fissure in your your life with your partner, with your husband or your wife, or with your with with your neighbor or with your workmate. That, that for for reconciliation to be to 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 happen, there has to be a receptive heart on the person who has been offended. But there also has to be a repentant heart on the person who's who's offended. Both have to happen for reconciliation to happen. But we're called upon to forgive before that asking for forgiveness maybe never happens, before it happens, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's independent of that. And secondly, if we don't do that, that will give rise to bitterness, which can cause us to to, to wilt and, and to lose our effectiveness. You know, I often say in court to people, uh, when, when they're standing in front of me, especially in, in family situations, that bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die from it. Think about that. That bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping to kill the, the person who's transgressed against you. And, and of course, it doesn't work. It just kills you. And so for the offended party, for the, for the person who's been hurt, it's important with God's help, and that's actually one of the principles here. God has to is part of the picture. We're going to see that here too. It's important to, to, to really appreciate and understand that for forgiveness to take place, the offended party has to be open to that and has to effectively offer at least, not necessarily by approaching the other person, sometimes that's impossible, but with God's help, to, to develop a heart of, of, forgetful, of forgiveness and forgetfulness, in a sense. So there has to be a receptive heart. And, uh, the, and, and, and by the way, that's not easy, is it? And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to read a couple of, uh, uh, from a couple of stories here. The, the first is from a guy by the name of Simon Weisenthal. You've heard of him? He's the, 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 the Israeli guy who's been the, the Nazi hunter over the years. And he was himself in a concentration camp. And uh, he, he's a man who is, uh, who's pursued Nazis all of his life. I think he died recently. Uh, and this is, what, this is what he said. He, he, he wrote a book, a well-known book called The Sunflower, subtitled, uh, on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. Now he's saying there are limits to, for, for, to forgiveness. And I think as human beings, we'd all agree that that's not, a, that's not a rash or a strange thing to say. But in the book, he tells of how a, as a Jewish prisoner in a concentration camp, he was summoned to the deathbed of a concentration camp guard. Um, and he went in there and the guard surprisingly asked him as a prisoner to forgive the guard who the guy was dying to forgive him for what he was a part of and um, Weisenthal left the room without a word uh, he didn't in other words did not offer forgiveness he, he, he couldn't do that and years later he after the war had ended he asked himself whether he had done the right thing and in the book there are 53 responses from different people all sharing their views as to whether or not he had done the right thing. But the book, the title really tells you where he was at. It's called The Sunflower on the Possibilities and Limits limits of Forgiveness. And I think human beings would say, I understand that. 
especially if I had family. I've got a good friend in Toronto who has grandparents. They, they were gassed in, in Auschwitz. Uh, and, 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 you know, it, it's easy for me to say, you know, you should resolve that. But it's very, very difficult for people who have been through it. And uh, the next story is, uh, involves a, a, a woman who also was in a concentration camp. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. You're, you, you're probably uh, uh, thinking I'm going to maybe refer to that already. And uh, she, uh, of course, and her dad and her sister, Betsy, you've read The Hiding Place or you heard of the book. You know what it's about. They were Dutch. Uh, Betsy and Corey were young people during the Second War. And their dad, I don't know where their mother went. She may have been died before that. But they were, they were hiding Jews in their home. And uh, Corey and her dad and her sister, Betsy, were taken prisoner. And uh, they... Uh, they, they went into a, a, a concentration camp there and were treated terribly. In fact, Betsy died uh, there and her dad died there and she escaped simply because the war ended before they could kill her. But it was a terrible, uh, terrible uh, time of, of, of torture and uh, demeaning behavior that, that was, uh, the, the, the Nazis of course saw these people as being, including them as being subhuman. And uh, of course they, they did this, they hid the Jews because they were they were believers in the Lord Jesus, and, and they realized they had to do this because it was it was right to do this, uh, and that the Jewish people were were God's people in a very special way. In any event, and uh, after the war, she was uh, she was speaking. She would speak about her experiences as a uh, as a prisoner of war and as a believer, and and this is what she writes uh, in the hiding place. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. The moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The place was Ravensbrück concentration camp. And the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards there. Now he was in front of me. His hand was thrust out. He said, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your, in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. And I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, his hand came out. Would you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For if I, for I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will you forgive your Father in heaven forgive you. And I still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. 
But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can help function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my heart, my hand rather, into the one stretched out in front of me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place that started into my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joint hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard, the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intently as I did then. I guess the point is, it's not easy. For the first guy, Simon Weisenthal, it was impossible. For Corey Tenboom, who'd been in a, the same situation, it was possible with God's help, but very difficult to do. All right, I'm just going to read now. Uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to read the bookend passages and then fill in some of the blanks between and draw some principles of life from there. Chapter 37, and we'll read just a few verses. I think you all know the story, but it, it bears, I think, repeating. Verse 24, then they, the brothers, they took him, that is Joseph, and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and then they saw the Midianites coming by. So Ju Judah verse 26, said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And uh, then he and his brother listened. And then verse uh, 28, they pull him from the pit. They, they sell him to the Midianites. They receive 20 shekels of silver. I assume there were 10 of them there. That's two shekels each. Put them into their pockets and watch their brother go. And as, as you read the story, the narrative, a little later on, we, we're, uh, we're given some insight into what happened because a little later on when they're before Joseph, jo Judah says to the brothers, and they don't know Joseph could hear, he says, listen, I I've been haunted by this for all these years. I can still hear him crying as we lifted him out and pleading with us to, to do that, but we wouldn't listen. Tough, eh? Tough job. Fast forward 22 years to chapter 45. We read verse 44, verse 18. You there? Okay. Then Judah came near to him. Judah came near to him. That's the same guy, by the way. This is 22 years later. This is Judah. This is uh, Joseph's older brother, the guy who had arranged the sale. He comes near to Joseph. And uh, he doesn't know, by the way, he doesn't know who Joseph is. This is the tender part of what it is. And he's pleading for his life and for the lives of his brothers. And Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word uh, and don't be angry and just listen to me. And then verse 20, 33, he says, Therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go with his brothers. What he is saying here effectively is, I am really sorry. You want to keep your younger brother here as a prisoner? Because Joseph has been setting this up. He says, keep me instead. I mean, that's repentance, right? I mean, there's nothing further. He, he's not only saying, I'm sorry, 
and, and, and he says, but he's saying he's, he's prepared to be a substitute. By the way, this is a theme throughout the scripture, right? I mean, we can't miss that point. I'm just going to stop there for a second. The Lord Jesus is our substitute. And he gives us life. And he's from the, from the tribe of, you know, of Judah. And here Judah, who, who is anything but Christ-like in most of his life, at this stage is really demonstrating repentance and remorse. He's saying to Joseph through an interpreter, he's saying, listen, you, you want to keep this guy, this younger guy here? Let, let him go back to his dad, because his dad's going to die if we keep him here. I will stand in his place. First, chapter 45, verse 1. But Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by, and he cries out, Make everyone go from me. So no one stood with him. Well, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. And the story is great. These guys are standing before him, including their brother right? Uh, their youngest brother, Benjamin, they're standing before Joseph. And, 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 and now Joseph says, he starts to cry and he weeps. And the whole household can hear it. He says, get out of here, you guys. And he, that, that, these guys are flummoxed, his brothers, they're standing in front of him. And he says to him, I'm him. You, you know who you're talking to? You know who you've been with all this time? That's me. It's Joseph. And he says, and he goes on to say, he cries and he, and, he, and he goes on in the story. It's just beautiful. I'm not going to take too much time to go through it. But he says, listen, God meant this in a way to save you. And you can see the parallels, I mean, with Christ. Because Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus in so many respects. And they're afraid of him. He says, don't be afraid. You come near me. In verse So verse four or five, you come near, and he yes. In verse four, he says, "Come near me," and then he says, "Don't be don't be grieved or angry with yourselves, because God sent me before you uh, to preserve life." Now, that is a that's a beautiful story of forgiveness, and we have we have here in this story, the story of of Joseph, a story of of estrangement and reconciliation, and remember the principles that I talked about earlier. You have a receptive heart in the aggrieved, and that, that is Joseph, and you have a repentant heart in these, these 10 guys who, were, who had greatly uh, treated him so, so poorly before. Now, I'd like to say this. You know, we talk about fractured families, and this, this story takes place 1,800 years ago, okay? Uh, more, more than that, actually. It, 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 it's it's 3,800 years. It's 1,800 B.C., so you're looking at almost 4,000 years ago. But the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, the principles of the Scripture from the very beginning to the end speak to 2022, whatever day this is right now. It speaks to our lives as individuals and as family members. You know, we talk about a fractured family needing, uh, needing healing, and you can go to a funeral home and uh, ask a funeral director, uh, how he or she puts together, deals with a family that's fractured. I'm not just talking about a husband and wife who've divorced. I mean, that's common enough. But I'm talking about siblings who aren't getting along and who won't talk to each other. It happens a lot. You ask to a funeral director, and they have protocols in place how to deal with this, because this is when the family comes together at the most tender moments. They're, they're torn apart. With, they're torn because of the death of the loved one that they have mutuality with. But they are, there's, a, there's, this, there's this great fissure in the family, this, this, this uh, division. And funeral directors are all, always know how to deal with this because it's such a common thing of siblings not talking to each other. Terrible. Now, you ask Aaron Rodgers about that. You know, the football player, the Green Bay Packers, big superstar, everything really great about him. His brother gets married. Brother and dad and mom invite him to the wedding, hoping to get things together. And Aaron Rodgers says, no, i got to play golf. That's another news item from a sports story. It's interesting. 
fractured family. Meghan Markle, her husband, his, I mean, I don't have to go on about that. Listen, talk to your neighbors. Just look into, into the families that we're all from. And these things are so endemic because we are human beings and filled with weaknesses. And we have problems. And the problems result, result in fracture so often. How did it happen here in this story? Well, uh, simple. And once again, the reasons don't change either. You got favoritism, dad to the sons. Shouldn't happen. The Bible never says that, 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 that Joseph's dad should have favored him. He did, and did it in ways that were just blatant and out, and, and were, were, were almost guaranteed to produce the result, jealousy, treachery, betrayal, and ultimately a cover-up and lies. I mean, what's, what's different today uh, that happened? I mean, that's, just, that's the very same thing, right? So it happens so often in families and in friendships. There's favoritism, there's jealousy, and then these things arise. And I mean, we don't necessarily don't throw people into the pit anymore and sell them. But in, in other ways, we there are things that happen that just make reconciliation so so difficult. And so the, the, what happens as a result of that is Joseph's in the pit for a number of days, and figuratively speaking, for a number of years as he's a prisoner. But these brothers, his, they live in a pit for 22 stinking years. That's where they are. I mean, you, you, you know, the Bible speaks of, uh, there are a lot of pits in the Bible. If you look at Genesis 14, those five kings that came from the east and, and took over the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and all that, and Abraham comes, they ended up in, in the pits. In fact, the scripture says they were pit pits, which means they were pity, pity, pity places for lots of pity in those pit pits there. They were, they were asphalt pits. That's where those guys ended up. And we, we live in a, in a situation the world is living in a situation of a pit. Now, the Bible also uses the, the pit as a metaphor for where we're at. And we're going to talk about that a little later. David found himself in a pit. Uh, was a, he was in a cave oftentimes, but he was in a pit after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and caused Bathsheba's husband to die. He, he, he pours out his heart in Psalm 51 of contrition. And in that great Psalm 40, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and he heard my cry and lifted me out of the miry pit, right? And placed my feet upon a rock and a new heart, new song in my mouth. And so we see the, the pit as a, as a place uh, uh, metaphorically that refers to where we are without God in our life. And uh, by the way, if we die without the Lord, we end up in a for the words, bottomless pit, right? That, that continues on. That's a, that's a metaphor describing what hell's like. Uh, it's a bottomless pit. And the pit, the metaphorical pit, as the literal pit, is a place of misery and a place that we cannot extract ourselves from without outside help. Okay, I'll say that again. The pit that we are in, the whole human race is in it right now. I don't have to take more than two seconds. I'll just say that. You know, I, I don't have to be, be specific. The, all of humanity, internationally, nationally, wherever we are, in our, in our families, we're in a pit. A pit is a place, that we, a place of misery and a place that we can't get out of without, without outside help. And so we, the, we see the pit in this, in this story. Now, we've talked about uh, the pit. And these guys are in a pit for 22 years. They're in a pit when they come before Joseph. Joseph's been in a pit really for a long time, not just a literal pit for a few days, but in the pit of Potiphar's house, in the pit of, uh, in the, pit of, of the jail, before he's raised up to the right hand of the majesty on high. And I want to suggest this too, that Joseph is in a, such an appropriate picture of Christ all the way through. He's rejected. 
by his brethren who tried to kill him. He sold for the going rate of slave, which was 20 pieces of silver then, 30 when, of course, when the Lord died. Uh, and he, he does it in order to save those very guys who are doing it. But you think of this too, he's, he's, he's in that place of, of virtual death. He's raised up to the right hand of the majesty on high, Pharaoh, in that sense. What does he give to these guys when, they're, when they, come to, they come to Egypt for their daily bread? He gives them their daily bread, doesn't he? I mean, it's remarkable that, that as we look through this, and doesn't charge them for it. He puts their money back in their sacks. You know the story about that. And so we have the story here of Joseph, which mirrors the, 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 the life of Christ. But I want to suggest to you this, that Joseph was a man. He was not God, and he had feelings like we did, the Lord did without sinning. Joseph was a sinner like us. How do I know that? The Bible tells us that all of sin comes short of the glory of God. And I want to suggest this to you, that it was hard for Joseph to forgive these guys. I don't know if you ever thought of that before. And I can tell you why. First of all, he's not God. Secondly, what would you think? <laughs> what would you think if you were put into a pit? And, and the, the scripture tells us in, 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 uh, in Psalm 105, I think it's verse 23 or something, that he was shackled. And, and the, 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 the verse there has the suggestion that he was shackled and they hurt his legs with these fetters. And the suggestion is they were on for years and years and years, like 13 or 14 years when he was in Potiphar's house, when he was in the jail, he was shackled. Otherwise he would have run away. So he's shackled. He's in a pit. He's in a house as a slave. He's in jail and he's shackled. How would you feel about the guys who started that? But there's more direct evidence than that. Uh, we see here uh, when he, uh, he, he's 12 years on the throne when they meet him, by the way, and he's about 200 miles away from home. He never goes back to see how his family's doing. You notice that? He, he, he doesn't even know that his father's still alive. I mean, he, I think he's nursing what, what I think we'd all, was he nursing some bitterness there? Look, I don't, I don't want to stand here and, and go after him because he's an exemplary guy. But for 12 years, he's at the right hand of Pharaoh and his family is about 250 miles away in Hebron. He doesn't go back. He doesn't send anybody back. He doesn't send any emissary back. He doesn't do anything. He, he's, he's occupied, sure he's a busy guy, but he doesn't do anything. But the real key is when he names his kids. Manasseh was the firstborn. They flipped the names around, you know that, the birth order. But Manasseh, he says, I'm gonna call him Manasseh because God is unable to me, help me to forget all that happened at home. That's what his name is. And Manasseh, the, the, the other guy, Ephraim, it means God has enabled me to have a good life here. That tells me, that tells me something, that it wouldn't be easy for him to, for, to forgive these guys when they appeared before him. And as you read the narrative, you can see it wasn't easy because he gave it to them, didn't he? I mean, it was testing from the Lord, but I don't see that Joseph resisted that at all, calling them liars and calling them spies and putting, putting the all in jail for three days, sending them home putting the money and then causing terror in them. And then he came back in to, and with their younger brother and then puts, puts the, 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 the goblet in his sack. I mean, listen, Joseph is, 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 he's upset with this. And so for him, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to forgive. And I'll tell you, it's not, that's why this is such a practical story because it's not easy for us either, is it? I mean, we get, we get hurt nothing like he did. But do we have a hard time forgiving? Absolutely we do. I mean, I don't know you, so I shouldn't say, I, you may, maybe you have an easier time than I do with this. So I'll, I'll say that, I mean, I think as human beings, we all, have, we all have challenged with this, don't we? But over time, we have a situation here 
where God enabled Joseph through the circumstance, the same circumstances that brought his brothers to, to, to have a repentant heart, the same circumstances enabled Joseph to, dis, to, to develop a receptive heart uh, at the same time. Now you're wondering, how did this, how did this happen, this, this meeting with, uh, with Joseph? How did this happen? What are the, just think of this now, what are the chances that, uh, that these guys who sold their brother into slavery, the 10 of them, because Benjamin wasn't part of it, uh, would ever come to meet him in the way that they did? I mean, he's sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's, he's governing all the land. He's basically the chancellor of the exchequer. He's the, the vice president. Uh, he is the guy who is who's under Pharaoh and in control of everything. He's sitting there with Pharaoh's robes on, Pharaoh's chain of office on. We know that from the text. And he's sitting high and lifted up with an interpreter, with bodyguards around him. And he is dispensing justice and wisdom to the whole, effectively the whole world. And, and how could it happen that these guys would appear before him? First of all, the Bible tells us that there was, you know, there's a famine that said, but God sends, you had to, the chances, by the way, from our point of view are probably less than zero because you got 3 million or so Egyptians and you, who's going to be on the throne 22 years later with the Pharaoh? Well, you got the, the line of succession. Maybe it's his oldest boy or his son-in-law or, or something like that, or someone from a, a rival family that's taken over. I mean, there's a small group of people you say, yeah, the possibilities are here, but for anybody else that's remote. Of those people, though, at the bottom of that list of possible people is a slave who'd been wrongly accused and put in jail and who was not even Egyptian. The chances are less than zero unless you have a famine, unless you have a, a Potiphar who's going to buy him, unless you have Potiphar's wife who's going to pursue him, unless you have a, a butler who's going to have a dream. Unless you have Joseph, who's got a heart to speak to the butler. And then unless you have a butler who's going to forget him for another couple of years. Unless you have Pharaoh, who's got to have a dream. Unless you have Pharaoh's wise men who can't answer it. And by the way, in all of our challenges in life today, the wise men and women of the world have no answers. Nothing. The philosophers, the educators, the, 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 the people who are medically uh, trained, they have no answers. The world is crumbling, and the wise men of our day have no answers at all. But the butler remembers, and they, there's a famine, and and he remembers that uh, that uh, there's a there's a just before the famine, Pharaoh has a dream, and he says, there, "But there's a guy I remember uh, who helped me with my dreams." Pharaoh says, "Send him up." And Joseph is just such a commanding guy. He's handsome. He's brilliant. He's got integrity that is just written all over him, and he's totally unafraid. He marches in and he gives Pharaoh an answer that just re that revolutionizes Pharaoh's life. And so Pharaoh appoints him. So you need that too. And then you need the famine to come, right? You need these guys to be hungry. And, and, you, and the, the Bible tells us that, that Joseph had storehouses, plural, in all the cities, plural, and these guys come and they, they go to the very storehouse in the very city at the very time when Joseph is sitting up there and all these cashiers are down there and he sees these bums coming in and he says, send them here. They had, they had, a, they had God's GPS as well. What are the chances? Are they less than zero? They're 100%. I mean, that's it. They're 100% because God in his sovereignty deigned to allow these guys to come 
and before their brother, and they kneel to him. And by the way, over the next little while, the ten of them bow in his presence. And Joseph says, you guys are spying. Over the next little while, they, they, there's four or five opportunities where they bow. And each time the bowing gets a little more, a little more, till the last time they're on their faces before him, reminding everybody in the whole world and us today of the dreams that Joseph had so many years before. And the last time they're joined by their brothers. So they're all there, all 11 guys. And they're before him. And they come in here and they're before, they're before Joseph. And at this point, the circumstances of life have brought them to a place of repentance. They are prepared to repent. And the same circumstances have enabled Joseph to come to a place where he would have a receptive heart. And God does the thing, does the difference, right? And so the chances of the meeting are 100%. Well, I'm going to get back to the text from Matthew chapter 6, where we pray in school. We did, not now. Uh, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the heart of the Lord's Prayer, as I said, in the heart of the Christian gospel. And as the Lord is hanging on the cross, he's paving a way, right, for reconciliation up and for reconciliation out. That's, that's, the, that's what the cross really does in its effectiveness. And, you know, Simon Weisenthal, in his book, spoke about the limits of forgiveness. Folks, this book says there are no limits on forgiveness. No limits on God's forgiveness. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how guilty you feel. Doesn't matter how cheap you feel about yourself. There are no limits on God's forgiveness. Joseph was a picture of, of Christ. Joseph had a challenging time forgiving these guys for what they did. We did far worse to the Lord. And he says, as we're doing it, Father, forgive them because they really don't know what they're about, what they're doing. You know, Jim Elliott is very well known. He's a, he's a, he's a man who, with four other missionaries, who was martyred in Ecuador to the Alcos there back in 1950, I think four or so, a long time ago. Brilliant young guys, and I don't think he ever got out of his 20s. Said some pretty amazing things, didn't he? He said, uh, he is no fool, or she is no fool, who exchanges that which he or she cannot keep for that which he or she can lose. Speaking of giving our lives to the Lord. But I, I just heard recently something else that he said that is just really something special. I don't know if he was anticipating his own death, but when he said this, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Think about it. When it comes to die, make sure all you have to do is die. In other words, you don't have to run around making, making things right with people you've offended. And especially, you don't have to make things right with the Lord because it may be too late if you die before you do that. Look, we've been talking this morning about lessons for life from, from the life of Joseph. The path to reconciliation in a fractured family. Things haven't changed. Same cause, same effect but also the same recipe for, for getting things together is there too. And even if there's not forgiveness on the part being asked for by the offended party, with God's help, we can get the bitterness out of our lives and go on to be productive and live lives that would honor the Lord. And hopefully reconciliation can happen. 
But I can guarantee you that if we bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and ask him to be our Savior and our Lord, we will be forgiven. There are no limits on forgiveness in this book. Simon Weisenthal, his book, had limits. This book has none. There are no limits on that. And so I, I, I look here and I think <coughs> you may all be believers. I hope you are. But there's an advantage of being a visiting guy. I, I don't know where, where all you stand. I, I'm just going to challenge everyone this morning to make sure you've made things right with the Lord. In terms of asking him to forgive us for our trespasses, and we all have to do that every day. But if we've never asked him to become our Lord and our Savior, I'd like to invite you this morning to do that. Uh, when I pray, I'm going to pray a, a, a prayer that we've commonly known as a sinner's prayer. I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to make up the words as I go along, but I'm going to hit the themes that we're, we're going to do. And I, if you've never if you've never accepted Christ into your life, I'm going to invite you to do that now. <clears throat> Before I do that, I'm going to say I'm going to ask you a question. Why not? You give me a good answer. That's you. You can you can uh, you can live with that. I can guarantee it won't be a good one. Just going to pray. Our Father, we just bow our hearts as a group of people this morning here in Ottawa, 2022 years after the Lord was born. And there's a lot of water under the bridge in our society as human beings. Certainly a lot of water under the bridge for us as individuals. And that includes a lot of sinning that has gone on in our hearts. A lot of things that we've said, things we've done, that have offended others and that have offended you because they're wrong. And we know that because of that, we are in a pit from which there is no exit without help. But we know that when David said, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry and lifted me up out of the pit, that you will do the same for us here today. And so Lord, we acknowledge that you came to the earth and you gave your life on that cross for bums like me. And Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I'd like to be saved all over again if I had to, but I thank you I don't. I was saved as a young guy. But I, Lord, if there are people here this morning who have never accepted Jesus into their life, we pray that this morning they will say this, Lord, you died for me. I accept your death as a substitute for me, that God's wrath was poured out on you instead of me. And Lord, I want to be saved. Please come into my life and make me new. And I thank you, Lord, for doing that even now. In Jesus' wonderful and great name, amen. Lord bless you.